Okay, Old Testament survey, book of Exodus. Let's pray, and then we have a lot to cover. We'll try to cover the whole book today, so uh, not, not actually every verse, but of course we're doing a survey. 50,000 foot view is what we're looking at. Maybe zoom in on a few passages, of course, but uh, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you for the book of Exodus. Uh, this, this great story of redemption, this historical account of deliverance, and it pictures our salvation so well. And we're thankful that you uh, chose Israel, that you, uh, through Abraham's covenant, that you blessed that nation, and that from that nation our Savior came, and all those promises that you gave to Israel, we get grafted into as Gentile believers. So help us to learn to be instructed by the Old Testament and to just know, Lord, to know how you work with your people, how you save, how you bless, how you forgive. Bless us as we study today the book of Exodus. In Jesus' name, amen. I like the book of Exodus. Probably it's up there with Genesis. Um, I love what God's doing there. Sorry, Moses and uh, the ten plagues and how he rescues them. So much in the old is... is then uh, pointed back to in the new. So let's jump in and uh, just talk about the title, the title of uh, Exodus. Where does it come from? In the Hebrew, it's Shemot. These are the names. So you'll see a pattern, especially in these first five books. The Hebrew uh, people, and even today in the Hebrew Bible, they just picked the first word in the book, and that's the title of it. Uh, the titles weren't always there. They get put there later in history. And so in Hebrew, the first word is Shemot, and it means these are the names. So if you look at Exodus 1.1, 1, 1, uh, that's what you'll see, and these are the names. And then it goes on to talk about um, the Hebrew people up to Moses. And so the Septuagint, though, that's the Greek translation, happens a couple hundred years before Christ. Now we're more familiar with the title. They called it Exodus in Greek. Why is it called Exodus? Well, in 19.1, flip over to Exodus 19.1, uh, the translators of the Septuagint felt like this was a better title to summarize the book. And again, since the title is not inspired, most, most people believe the title is not inspired by God. And so you can title it, and then it gets in traditionally into our Bibles, and, and we become familiar with that name, so who wants to change it then? But uh, 19.1, in the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So gone out, exited in Greek. And so we get the word exodus, which means departure or exit. And that's what we're familiar with. That, that does summarize, I think, the main action that's happening in the book is an exit from Egypt, an exit from bondage, an exit from slavery. Uh, the author, of course, Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses becomes the main figure in Exodus, and he will be the main figure throughout uh, Deuteronomy until his death at the end of Deuteronomy. What's the theme, if we were just to summarize the whole book? It's redemption and deliverance. Redemption and deliverance. We, we looked at redemption in, in Christ last week in the sermon. And what does is, what is redemption, the word, mean? Who remembers from the sermon? I'm going to test your knowledge. What is it? Yes, release release from captivity. Yeah, and it, and it requires a ransom, a ransom. And so, uh, what was the ransom? If we were to use that uh, theological picture, what was the ransom given when they exited? 
Who remembers? The first Passover, right? The, the, God taught him a lesson with the sacrifice of the lamb. And that the lamb had to be sacrificed so that their first son wouldn't be killed. And then he immediately told them to leave. So uh, later Christ picks that up and says he is the Passover lamb. And then we're redeemed because of his sacrifice. And we're delivered. Deliverance is a little bit different than redemption. Deliverance just means taken away from harm, taken away from punishment, taken away from wrath, uh, delivered out of the bad things that were happening to them in Israel as a result of, or in Egypt, as a result of the Pharaoh and, and the slavery they were in. Now, if we were to expand that a bit more, we could say Yahweh. The purpose of the book is Yahweh. That's the personal name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. The God of creation carried over from, from Genesis, the God of creation, the God of the patriarchs. This is still the same God. People think, uh, you know, one group of people wrote Genesis, the liberal scholars do. They say, this writer, he, he wrote Genesis to focus on God, Yahweh. And then another group of Hebrews came along and they wrote Exodus and they focused on a different God. No, it's the same God. It's the same name that Abraham received, Yahweh. And now Moses is going to receive it in Exodus 3. And then they're redeemed, delivered, just like we said, the sons of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And then they entered into a covenant. So about midway through Exodus, now that God has saved them, they enter into an agreement, a covenant with God. Not to earn their salvation, because he's already done what? First they're redeemed. Then they enter a covenant. And you know what they say? We will obey. Thank you, God, for saving us. We will obey. And then as soon as things don't go their way, they turn around and rebel. But don't think that the covenant is to earn their salvation. How do we outline the book? There's different views. I gave you three options there. This is probably the best one. And this really is an interpretive issue, too, that we'll just go ahead and handle now. What's the best way to outline a book? And we're asking, how does God reveal this to us in the book? Does he organize it so we can understand what's going on? And I think geographical is the best. You have Israel and Egypt, Israel in the wilderness as they are going out to Mount Sinai. And then when they get to Mount Sinai, that's when God starts delivering the Ten Commandments, how to build the tabernacle, the instructions that they need for worship, and the instructions to live a godly life. And so there's three main phases in the book here. And that's probably the best way, I think, to outline it. You could also do major movements. There's the, the whole building up to the exodus and then exiting. Then there's the law itself given. And then there's the tabernacle instructions. So we all start off in exodus loving it. And then sometimes we bog down when it's just, you know, take this measurement and build this piece of wood just like this for the tabernacle pole and it can kind of uh, seem far removed, and then there's a lot of action going on in the first 18 chapters. We could also say it can be organized by major ideas. I like this one the least. Uh, repression in the first 11 and redemption from 12 to 40. These are just different ways scholars have outlined the book. But again, I, I would prefer this one right here. Where are they at? And that keys us into what's going on. So they're in Egypt. And I think this is a good picture, again, in the New Testament. Elements of this get picked up. This is a good picture of our salvation. Right? We're in bondage. We're in bondage to what? Not to Egypt, not to Pharaoh, but to sin, to Satan. 
And then we spend some time sort of wandering around. You know, it's not exactly parallel to the New Testament, but uh, God will redeem us. And then we have this new covenant. They have the old covenant at Sinai. We have the new covenant. So especially A and C, I think, uh, parallels our new covenant salvation in Christ. There's only one key date you need to know. And this is hotly debated, especially amongst liberal versus conservative. When did this happen? When did this happen? And can we even date it? And we can. It's 1446 B.C. Uh, that's the closest we can get. Uh, you know, give or take a year or two, I guess. Maybe maybe a decade if you wanted to really stretch it. But it has to be around that according to Scripture. Now, this is going to become an interpretive issue we'll look at in a minute because there's lots of projected dates. But they all project their dates based on things outside the Bible, based on things happening in Egyptian history, based on things happening in, in the land of Canaan and what's going on there. If we go to 1 Kings... Chapter 6. Uh, turn over to 1 Kings. Uh, we get a, a number of years that help us to date this. Now, this is an important event for the nation of Israel, so they're going to refer back to it often. And so 1 Kings 1. Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. So we get a, a number there, 480. And then what does it say next? The fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. In the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. So Solomon began to reign. He began to reign in 970. Four years later, 966, he builds the temple. So here's our timeline. Uh, we'll just put a little house here for the temple. Don't make fun of my drawings. I'm not the artist in the family. That's the temple. And this is Solomon's reign right here. So now what do we need to do to figure out the, the exodus? Just need to work backwards, right? How many years? 480 from that point. That's going to put us where? The answer is here in case you're slow like me in math. 1446. The numbers are given in the Bible. It's a word problem that my kids always have to solve in their homework. Uh, it's right there in Scripture. We, we really don't have to guess. Now, where does 970 come from? Well, everybody agrees that's when Solomon started to reign. Even, even the secular historians can, they can date David. They can date Solomon for certain. Uh, they're beginning to think they can date David. We, we, of course, can with Scripture. But God gives these numbers for a reason, not just for Israel, but they're lessons to us, and we can work backwards. So 1446, later, when we come to the interpretive issues, I'm going to ask you, what do you think my view is? Just remember that number right there. All right, key chapters. Let's just scan through the book, flip pages maybe as, as I go through these. We have uh, what's happening there in Exodus after Joseph, and a, and a key section there is Moses and 3 to 4. So the call of Moses. Moses uh, has a history, has a, a birth f told to us in chapter 2. 3, he's out there in the wilderness because he's run away from Egypt. He, he killed the Egyptian. He was scared he would be found out, killed himself. So he goes out into the wilderness for 40 years and he comes upon a burning bush. And it's God speaking to the bush. 
But it's actually the angel of the Lord. And we're cross-referencing with other scriptures. That's the pre-incarnate Christ. So God, through the pre-incarnate Christ, is speaking through a fire in a bush that's not consumed. Remember, he takes off his shoes. He's on holy ground. And God begins to tell him what he's going to do. And what does he do? He complains, right? I can't do it. I can't talk. And Moses sa- uh, God says, you can because I made your mouth. Who makes the mouth? Moses still persists. Then God says, okay, I'll send your brother Aaron. He can help you do some of the talking. But Moses is still going to be the prophet of God. And so Moses is called and he's, he asks, who should I tell them that you are? What's your name? And that's when God reveals his name, Yahweh. I am that I am, which is going to be a a key verse coming up on your handout. So Moses goes back now to talk to Pharaoh, as God had told him. And uh, Moses tells Pharaoh, you have to let all the people of Israel go. Of course, Pharaoh doesn't do it. His heart has been hardened. He hardens his own heart. God hardens his heart. That's another interpretive issue we'll look at. And so the ten plagues come about. I can just imagine Moses being surprised that these things are happening, you know. God tells him they're going to happen. He's the one actually coming up, trying to do them. And then, well, what was his thought when the water turned to blood? When his staff, you know, turns into a snake? Uh, I can just imagine, he, he's much like us. Of course God can do this. And then when it happens, you're just amazed that it, God did it. Uh, chapter 12 is the Passover. Uh, the, the last plague is killing of the firstborn sons. That would include Israel. All animals are going to be killed, all firstborn animals, all firstborn humans, except if you put the Passover lamb blood on your doorpost, then that son won't be taken from that household. Israel is told to do that, so they do, and death passes over them. And then the Red Sea, actually the Reed Sea is how it's um, spelled in Hebrew. That's important because we're going to find out, we're going to have to determine where this might have happened. So it's the Reed Sea in chapter 14. God parts the waters. They walk across on dry land. Then the army comes in from Pharaoh and gets swallowed up and completely destroyed. And then chapter 18, Jethro comes and he tries to help Moses who's taken on too much. He can't handle it all. You know, there's probably 3 million total people traveling with him at least. How does he oversee that? And his father-in-law just says, hey, you need to appoint some other men. So we get the first mention of elders, elders in Israel, those who help lead the nation. And of course, we have elders in the church, those who help lead the church that are, that are similar. Not exact, of course, but similar. Chapter 19, the, the nation's new constitution. Kind of goes off the screen there, doesn't it? Constitution. This is their Ten Commandments, a summary of God's law in chapter 20. But God inaugurates that in, in 19. How is that going to come about? Uh, the, the deliverance of the tablets and then the Ten Commandments come down eventually. The, the final set, the first one is broken. Then the golden calf incident in 32. God's going to destroy them all. God's going to wipe out the nation because they decided Moses had taken too long on the mountain. God must have destroyed him. He's going to come destroy us. We better worship God. We don't know how to do that, really. No one's told us. We're just going to build our own idol. It's no big deal to, to worship an image, right? It's no big deal to worship. Well, what was the first commandment? I'm the Lord your God. 
Right? Don't, don't worship any created image. Of course, the Catholics, they actually, in their Ten Commandment list, they, they leave that one out. But you cannot bow down and worship an image and say that that's the true God of the Bible. Or just say that's a different God. You're not to do either. And they did that. And they had a little celebration there. And they committed much immorality. Moses is very angry with them as well. God's going to destroy them. Moses intercedes, pointing to what Christ is going to do for our believers. Christ intercedes for us when we sin. He's our mediator. Moses, in a sense, was their mediator before God. And then we have the tabernacle finally completed in chapter 40. So if you wanted to just point out some of the chapters, these would be, I think, the key ones. What are some of the passages now? Well, I told you that chapter 3 is when we get God's name. That's where the idea or the name of Yahweh comes from. It shows up in Genesis briefly with, with Abraham talking to God. But God really brings it out here in Exodus 3 and says, Tell the people, I am who I am has sent you. This is my name forever to all generations. Now, a bit of interesting history there. Uh, the Jewish people, so in, in Hebrew, this is Yahweh. But sometime after Christ, not too long after it, probably after the temple was destroyed, sometime around there, some would say a little before Christ, they began to think that if they said God's name out loud, that was dishonoring, that was taking the Lord's name in vain. But they didn't want to change their Bible. You're not going to erase your Bible. So what they did was they changed the little points that go under. So, you know, in, in Hebrew, you'll have these letters like so and, you know, so on. And you have these little points under it and these little points above it. And that tells you how to say the vowel sounds because it's just consonants. Well, they knew that this was a holy name of God and they felt like they shouldn't be saying it. So what are they going to do? They can't erase their Bibles. They'll just change the vowel sounds, which will change how you say it when you read it out loud. So they change these, and let's just say they change them like something like this, to match Adonai. And so instead of coming out Yahweh, they would come to that passage, they would come to that word and say Adonai instead of Yahweh. Adonai means Lord. That's a title. Yahweh is a name personal name of God, the personal name of our God. And so they would say Adonai. Well, later when Germans start translating the Bible, they look at that and they say, how do you say this word? And so instead of Y, they say J, and it becomes Jehovah. So we go from Yahweh to Adonai, then into German, and then into English as Jehovah. And Jehovah's Witnesses pick that up and say, that's the only name of God. That's the true name of God. If you don't say Jehovah, then you're not even saved. You have to say Jehovah because that's his name. Now we can go back, take the vowel points off because they weren't there originally, and start over and just say, this was probably pronounced Yahweh. Or maybe Yahweh, but, but probably Yahweh in Hebrew. So just interesting how we got Jehovah. We still got a lot of those hymns. We say Jehovah, why? Because in the 1800s, that's, that's the name they used. It took more recent scholarship to go back and work out the vowel sounds for God's name. When I used to live in Albuquerque, I, I would uh, get a mailer from a local Jewish mm -hmm. little paper, and they would not even print G-O-V. 
underscore the. Yeah, so that gets carried over into English, where you have the, the vowel and the word God, the vowel's taken out. So it's dash. And I, they usually just say the name. So if they're reading along in English and it says God, they'll just say the name or Lashem, the name in Hebrew. That's more common today. Okay, 411 is a key verse. Who has made man's mouth? Uh, the, you know, or, or people dumb, unable to speak, or those who are deaf, or those who can see, and those who are blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Why is this key? Because a lot of people want to, you know, blame God in a bad way for however they're born, whatever handicaps they have, or whatever issues they have, whatever happens to them in life. And God is telling Moses, yeah, I know you can't talk that well. So what? I knew that before I told you to go and speak for me. Because, of course, God knows people already. But he made them. He's going back in front and saying, I I made you that way. There was a purpose, in other words. It's not uncommon, even in talking with people or counseling, for for those who are kind of questioning God, maybe as believers or unbelievers even. Of course, they question God. And they'll say, well, you know, God didn't cause that. that. That... that condition that's so prevalent, uh, handicapped, people can't talk. Well, according to this verse, he did. Which tells us if he's a good God and he did that, then he must have had a purpose for it. And we don't always know the purpose. But if, if it's a family member, maybe a family member you're taking care of, part of that purpose is to make you more godly, to make you more holy, because now you've got to take care of somebody with this condition. But, we don't always know the purpose and all the purposes God had in mind. 1526, If you give heed, I will put none of the diseases on you which I put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. So as long as they're obeying, because they already say, we're God's people, we're, we've been saved, we're, you're our God, we're your people. And now God's going to discipline them if they disobey. They're going to be disciplined. And he says, as long as you do what I tell you, then nothing like this is going to happen. What happened in Egypt is not going to happen in Israel. But if you don't, you know, the opposite will occur as well. So God's their healer and that he will always keep them as a nation healthy if they're following him. 19.5-6 through If you will indeed obey my voice and my covenant, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So what's he saying there? If you remain in covenant with me, in a right relationship with me, then I will bless you. And the purpose of that whole thing is to be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they're to be the nation that everyone flocks to God through. You want to know God in that time, you have to come to Israel You have to talk to somebody who knows God. You have to hear about the scriptures and the message there. You couldn't go into the temple, but you could get close to it with a Gentile. And you could even, um, as a Gentile, you could even make sacrifices and go about certain things like baptism to show repentance of your sins. So you could follow the true God as a Gentile. It just was very uncommon. The Ten Commandments are in uh, 21 through 17. Let's have a look at that. What are the Ten Commandments? They're a summary of everything that God is going to say from this point 
Exodus 20, all the way through Deuteronomy. It's a summary. It's a, it's a declaration. Kind of like we have a declaration of independence which summarizes our rights in America. Well, they have a declaration that God's given them here which summarizes their laws, what they're supposed to do. Then God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that's the intro there. First, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath in the water under the earth. So that's the one that's often left out with Greek Orthodox and um, the Roman Catholics. They don't include that idea as part of the Ten Commandments. They see it there, but they don't bring it out and teach on it. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, uh, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So the idea there is if they don't follow these, if they break these commandments, there's going to be an effect in the nation. And God's just not going to forget about that. You know, once the fathers start doing it, then the sons will do it, and the grandsons and so on. God's not going to say, well, you know what? I'm not going to worry about that. No, he's going to punish the nation for that. There are going to be effects of sin in the nation. But, verse 6, he hears the grace. Verse 6, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Then he goes on, you shall not uh, take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Then he talks about the Sabbath. Um, down in, in verse 12, it becomes now more focused between people. See, first few commandments are focused on God, our relationship with Him. And then 12 onward, honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. So that was a summary. That was something they had to memorize. And as Christians, we should know the Ten Commandments. I think sometimes people put them too high. You know, they, they almost put them above even the New Testament, it seems like. But we should know them. We should teach our children what God's expectations are of his people. It's a great summary of that. And then uh, verse there, 21, chapter 21, verses 22 through 24, talks about life in the womb. And this is the eye for an eye passage as well. Is abortion, the idea of life in the womb and abortion, is that mentioned in the Old Testament or in the Bible at all? Uh, go back to verse 21, 22. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child. So she's pregnant. The two men are fighting. The woman, you know, she's rushing in trying to break it up. One of the guys hits her. And she gives birth prematurely. Yet there's no injury to the child. The man who hit her shall be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him. So he has to pay a fine, a penalty. And as the judge... Judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So if the baby comes out injured, malformed because of that, then the judge would decide or the judges would decide on the punishment. The man himself might be punished in such a way that disfigures him. Uh, if, if he kills the child, what are they saying here? 
life for life, according to that law, according to that law. So does God care about babies in the womb? Does God care about life in the womb? Of course he does. That's the point here, because people thought that if, it, if they heard a child inside the womb, it was no big deal, just like today. They thought the same back then. Why? Because they want to do what they want. They want to sin, and they want to suffer the consequences. And God's saying, no, there will be consequences. You need to know that. You need to know that. Now, should we, as Christians today, do we do this in the church? Right? If Ernest hits me, do we, like, all hit him back? No, we don't do that, right? Why? Why? Well, there's many reasons. I'll just give you the main one. We're not the nation of Israel. This is not a nation. This is not a civic government that we have in the church. It's a church government which is different than a civic government. Now, should we call upon our nation to punish wrongdoing? We should. That's just. That's right. But it's not as if our nation's Israel either that has to just pick up the Old Testament and there's the guidebook. It doesn't work like that. Sometimes people want, want them to follow that, but we really don't. We really don't. Because in, in the Old Testament, even for the people who were in the nation, there were some severe harsh rules and punishments. Now that was God's holiness being displayed. He was teaching them a lesson. But just like we don't have the sacrifices in, we don't have the civic government right now that God put upon Israel. We will have something greater than that when Christ comes back. But there won't even be a need for these punishments after he does his judgment. Key people, Aaron, that's Moses' spokesperson, his brother. He's consecrated as high priest. Uh, Jethro, that's not the guy from the TV show. What was that TV show? The Clampets? Beverly Hillbillies. Jethro it was an older name than Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, that's Moses' father-in-law. He's a Midianite. He comes under, under the um, nation of Israel as sort of a refugee traveling along with them out of Egypt and uh, you know, becomes a believer. We could say he becomes a believer. Miriam. Moses' sister, she was a prophetess. She even leads the women in what I would call a choir of worship in chapter 15. She's also the one that stirs up trouble for Moses. And she gets uh, a punishment, discipline from God for that. Moses is a prophet of the highest order. In fact, he'll say there's one coming after me that's even greater. But uh, he is the highest prophet until Christ, or John the Baptist. He's also the lawgiver. Deliverer of Israel, the author of the book, and then Zipporah, Moses' wife. A couple commentaries uh, that, that don't go too much into things that would bore you, like Hebrew syntax and Hebrew grammar. Douglas Stewart has a good commentary on Exodus in the New American Commentary series. It's all in English. If there are Hebrew words, I think he transliterates them into English letters. And then a really accessible commentary is by Mathieu. I'm sure in French you say it differently, but uh, Mathieu, the message of Exodus. And this is the Bible Speaks Today commentary series. The whole series is pretty good. Pretty good. They're not going to line up with everything we believe and teach here. But it's a pretty good, easily accessible commentary. It's, it's sermons usually edited into a commentary. So it, these are helpful to understand the book. If I was preaching or teaching through it in a Bible study, I would, I would have these for sure, and I would be using those. Okay, interpretive problems. Interpretive problems. There's a few of these here. 
Can you read that? You can read it on your paper. Did the Hebrew midwives lie? Did they lie? Let's look at that. I didn't put the reference, but it's in chapter 1. I think it's 115. It's on your paper, 115? So let's read that. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth, this is a, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. When you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put him to death. If the daughter, then she shall live. So they want to reduce the number of Hebrews in the land. They're, they're scared of them. There's now a Pharaoh, a line of Pharaohs that has arisen that did not know Joseph. They don't remember who Joseph was, what he did for Egypt. And so they're scared, they're worried. These people are going to multiply so much they can conquer us. And so they're to kill all the sons. But the midwives feared God, verse 17. They did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women. For they're vigorous, they give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. So did they lie? And however we answer that, you know, that, that has an effect on what we believe about lies and what we believe about sin. We don't have time to go too far down the ethical road here, but the, the options are no. A would be no, they, they didn't lie. They just had a prearranged plan. So their plan was, hey, when you're going to give birth, you just go ahead and give birth and call us after the fact. Right? That's just what my wife does sometimes. Oh, a couple of kids, but uh, not planned out that way. I guess it's possible a few could have happened like this, but you know, there's a million, you know, 800,000 women maybe there, a million women. How are they going to manage that, you know? They're probably, the two midwives are probably just head of a bunch of midwives because I don't know how they themselves could go around. Maybe if the encampment was really close, they could work all day and all night. But I don't think there's anything in the text to tell us they had a prearranged plan. Uh, number two, under no, another option is it was just a deflection. They're evading the question. They're withholding information. That's not lying. Well, withholding information is not lying. There are many, and even types of deception are not lying. Or deflection, we might say. I mean, there's many people who work for government that do this. not necessarily lying. That's not what they're doing, though, right? They clearly weren't deflecting. I don't believe they're deflecting. I mean, they're, they're engaged in what he asked them. They just tell him something different. So... You can guess which side I'm going to fall on here. So if we say yes, there's three different ways it's been explained. Yeah, they lied, but no big deal. They, they're exempt from a sin to save a life. So the question is not only why, did they lie, but why does God seem to bless them through that? So they were justified in doing it, but they're exempt from any guilt from sin because they saved a life. Number two, they were justified in lying because Pharaoh did not deserve the truth as an enemy of God. So, of course I lied. Big deal. They didn't deserve to hear the truth anyway. 
And then three is just, yes, they lied, but God's not commending them for it. What's he commending them for then? Fearing God. In other words, the whole lie situation skipped over because it's not really part of the issue. It's not about dealing with their own individual sin. This is about the nation. This is about the storyline of Israel, uh, Moses, and God's not going to inspire Moses. Hey, Moses, just stop for a couple pages and just open up this idea of lying and sin and what we do with that. That's in the New Testament. This is historical narrative. And the main characters are not Shipra and Pua. They're minor characters in the story. So which one am I going to go with? What do y'all think? B3. They lied. It's okay. I mean, not okay that they lied. Lying is a sin, but that's not the focus. So we don't have to, we don't have to really wrestle and work out. Why is God blessing them for lying? He's not. He's, he's blessing them because they feared him and didn't kill the children. Killing children would, of course, be a greater sin than lying. But we shouldn't necessarily start saying, lesser of two evils, which do we pick? No, they lied. I'm sure they repented and God forgave them. And uh, The focus, though, is on how they didn't kill the children. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Is that a figure of speech just for stubbornness? There's no, actually no hardening of the heart. He's just a stubborn guy. B, is that hardening of Pharaoh's heart, is that just a humiliation of Pharaoh and the Egyptian religion? So it wasn't that Pharaoh was really hardened as much as he was humiliated. So every time you see Pharaoh's heart was hardened, you should think Pharaoh's heart is humiliated. Is that, is that the right view? C, Yahweh confirmed Pharaoh's determination. So C would be... A, really a focus on Pharaoh. So this might line up with what we call, you know, Pharaoh's free will was not impinged. Uh, he did it all himself. And, or D, the emphasis on divine sovereignty. So God was the main one, the ultimate one acting here. The emphasis is on God. How would we determine this one? Well, the way to do it is to look at all the passages that talked about this and just see what they tell us. What do they tell us? So I've listed them here. Oh, I'm going to choose D, by the way, and I'll tell you why. Not just because I like God's sovereignty and the doctrine there. Of course, of course, right? Because I think it's in the Bible, but that's not enough. Interpretive issues aren't, here are the three options, pick your favorite, right? Interpretive issues are, what does the text say? And what does it not say? So there they are. I know it's small, but... We're not going to read them all anyway. The, the top left here, these are texts where Yahweh, where God, is the subject of the verb hardened or strengthened. Strengthening the heart is the same thing as hardening it. So look at how many where God's the subject of the one doing the hardening. Starting in 421. You see that? 421? Long before Moses goes, I will harden, I will strengthen, I will harden his heart. And then all the way down. Now, here's a group of texts right here where Pharaoh's the one hardening his heart. He hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh and his officials hardened their hearts three times. So just by number, there's quite a bit difference in these two, isn't there? Then lastly, no one is specified in this last group here. It just says that it was hardened. Pharaoh's heart was strengthened. It was hardened. There is no subject. We don't really know. But 
often in the Bible, and I'll mention this in my sermon, when there is no subject, it's often implied that God is the one doing it. God's providence. So he's not named, but it's, his, it's in his providence that this is happening. So why am I going to choose that the emphasis is on God's sovereignty and God is the one primarily in focus here? Because it's mentioned more times and it's the first one mentioned. God says, I'm going to do it. He does not say, I'm going to wait to see what Pharaoh does and then maybe I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. He does not say, you know what? Pharaoh's going to harden his own heart. I'm just telling you in the future so you'll know. He says, I will do it. I will do it. God's the ultimate determiner of all things. Now, this is not sinful or wrong. Why? Well, multiple reasons. God is holy. He's not sinful. He can't be. But firstly, Pharaoh wanted to harden his heart. So what's God doing? You could say he's giving Pharaoh what he wants. But God determined it to happen in the first place. Yeah, he did, because he determines all things that are going to happen for his purposes. But Pharaoh's not unhappy about that, because that's what Pharaoh wanted. These three right here make it clear. This is exactly what Pharaoh wanted. So God's just giving him what he wants. Just like in Romans 1, they turned away from God, and he gave them over to this group of sins. They continued to turn away from God. He gave them over to this group of sins. Many places in the Bible where God gives them over to what they want. And that's all in his predetermined will. And they have no problem because they love it to begin with. So its emphasis is on God's sovereignty. But that does not mean that Pharaoh wasn't happy and wanting to do that. Even when he lets them go, he then changes his mind right away. So his his heart is just hardened the whole time. Why? Because he's a slave to sin. He's a slave to Satan. Pharaoh already had a hardened heart, of course, but that's not what, we're not talking about how he had a sinful heart. God is saying he's going to make it, make Pharaoh so resistant that he won't let the people go. And he says he's going to do it for his own glory because it makes God look more glorious if Pharaoh resists. And Pharaoh doesn't care if that happens because he thinks he's doing it anyway and he's happy to do it. So it sits back to Joseph and his brothers. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good, which means God caused it to happen in the first place. Even though the brothers did evil, God predestined that that would happen. Even though Pilate and the Jews would kill Christ, that was evil. God meant it for good. God predestined it all to happen in the first place. So I think with, um, with believers, with, with believers especially, it's just learning what the Bible says and accepting it like we all had to do at some point. God opened our hearts to these truths. But uh, an unbeliever's not going to like this usually. I'm probably not going to go here as my first Bible study with an unbeliever. Uh, I'll say, you know, this whole book was written for God's people, believers. And there's a lot to cover when you get saved. Now let's focus on what it means to be saved, to be redeemed. But yes, believers, you would think, if they have the Spirit, you can show them these things. All right, another issue, the plagues. What are they? Just natural phenomena? A meteor crashed into the water and it turned red. The insects just were very bad that year and they came up and the frogs. And, and then there was a virus that spread and just happened to selectively kill the firstborn sons of Egypt. We're going to go with natural phenomena? No. It's, even if it was natural phenomena and it being that selective, we would still have to say, well, that's God obviously doing something. But no, it's not described as natural phenomena. Now, he uses the natural world to do miraculous things, of course. 
Is it just a literary framework? Whenever people don't want to believe things in the Bible, they just say literary framework. Because, you know, everybody can make up a story. God's just making up a story, arranging it so that we can learn something. Well, it is arranged, but it's first arranged in God's mind, then it's accomplished in history, and then it's put in Scripture. So just like with creation, yeah, there's some literary organization there because God organized it to begin with, and then Moses wrote it down that way. But it's still a real historical event. Is it a supernatural action? Yeah, it is. And then I think these two, D and E, should be tabbed over in your, in your handout. So a supernatural action. There are two ways it can be viewed as God's supernatural action. Is it a polemic? Uh, God actively proclaiming something against the Egyptian gods? Or is it more to be viewed as a decreation? He's, you know, the, the end of the ten plagues is what? Men dying. The pinnacle of God's creation on the six days, mankind. What's the first, uh, the very first plague? What is it, in, what's involved in the first plague? Who remembers? What is it? Water turns to blood? What's the first item really mentioned in the creation? Spirit hovered over the waters. So some would say this is just God decreating, in a sense, a judgment of decreation in Egypt. I'm going with D because the Bible specifically mentions it in two places. That's always a good help, right? God says specifically. So let's look at Exodus 12, 12. A lot of times as believers, we don't know this. He's not doing it mainly for them. Uh, he's doing it primarily to show his glory and to bring judgment on Egypt for not letting them go. But it's also a proclamation against the Egyptian God. So 12, 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So they're going to know their gods are not powerful, that their gods are weak, that their gods mean nothing when it comes to the scheme of things here. Numbers 33.4 is the same. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them, the Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. So it seems clear on that one. I'm going with uh, polemic against the Egyptian gods. This is from, the, I think, the MacArthur Study Bible. You might have seen this in a previous class I did on empires. What are the ten plagues? Uh, first, water to blood. It doesn't look like blood, but it actually turns to blood. The Egyptian hoppy dealt with um, the water, the Nile. And what was the result? Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Then the frogs, this is the Egyptian deity, Hect. Pharaoh begs relief, promises freedom. So each time, yeah, he's hardening his heart, but each time he has to realize his gods are not powerful. They're not, they're not even real, should be the conclusion. But they ignore that and just go on with life. Uh, then lice comes, Hathor and Nut, two gods that deal with lice, insects, bugs, uh, Pharaoh's hardened, flies, Shu and Isis are over the flies, Pharaoh tries to bargain but he's hardened again, the livestock are diseased, Apis is over livestock, Pharaoh's heart's hardened, 
boils. You have to be reading this thinking, I would totally bend at this point. I mean, so much supernatural, miraculous stuff is happening to my country. In our nation today, if the president doesn't do what we think he should do, not even what he's required to do, but if he doesn't do what we think he should do, there's a big uproar. Now the whole nation's falling apart and the, fa- the leader won't even bend here. Uh, boils are against the god Sekhmet. I guess you can see the effects are going to be Pharaoh's hardened all the way down. Hail, the god Geb. Locus, Serapis was the god of Locus. Ra's the god of the sun. And so when the sun's taken away, that's darkness. And then death of the firstborn, who's the god over the firstborn, the god over the people, that's Pharaoh himself. It's not listed there, but it would be, I think it would be Pharaoh himself. It's Pharaoh's son that's taken. Pharaoh is himself, he views himself as a god of, e- of Egypt. The date, what's the right answer here? 1446. You've got to put that in your head for the Exodus. There's a movie called uh, Patterns of Exodus that deals with this whole issue. It came out a couple years ago, a documentary. Uh, it's pretty good, pretty good to watch. I think it's out there on all the live streaming uh, online movie places. So I would go with an early date, 1446. Some would push it back a bit and say it was in the 1550. I, I don't really know what their arguments are for that. Not, not in the scripture, I don't believe. And then the late date is people who can't accept the numbers that we just read in First Kings. They think those numbers are not to be taken literal. They're just uh, figurative, allegorical. And then they look in secular history to find out what would be the best fit. So 1260 is pretty popular. Almost all, even some conservatives would go with 1260s. All the liberals are going to go with 1260 if they even believe the Exodus happened. 1260s when Ramses, I think it's the second, Ramses the second, is ruling. And since there's a city named Ramses that they're building in the book of Exodus, People say Ramses, Ramses, case closed. Ramses ruled in 1260 around that time. Well, we look to the Bible first, take those numbers as meaning literal numbers, of course. And then we can look around in history and see where that might fit. But it doesn't really fit with Ramses very well. But if you go on our website, find the search bar, uh, or click on equipping classes under ministries, find the search bar, and type in biblical backgrounds you'll see a class i did not this past summer but the previous one and i make some suggestions on who probably was the the ruler in egypt at that time i think it was thutmose the third whose mother was hotshipsit and that not only fits the time but there's some there's some keys in egyptian history that that could indicate uh, what happened and why her name was marked off. Is she, the, is she the, the queen, the princess that saved Moses out of the water, who later became a queen, and then they marked out her name because of what happened with the army of Egypt and the plagues? You'll have to listen to that one to find out. Last one, the route of the Exodus. This is not really a solvable one because we don't know the locations that are mentioned. There's a few locations in Exodus that are mentioned. We can, we can find some of those. In Numbers... It goes back in Chronicles where they stopped when they left. There's a lot of places listed. We, we don't know where they are. And later in history, even in the early Christian era, when, uh, when in the Christian era that Christians rule over Africa, 
Saudi Arabia, what we call Saudi Arabia, Arabian Peninsula. It's a tourist attraction to call your town this name mentioned in the Bible. So towns begin to be called the whatever. And you can come here and you can see where Moses came. And even today, you can still go through that area. And, and this is supposedly the route. So there's a northern route. This one's interesting to me because it, it has them crossing on part of the Mediterranean Sea, which Mediterranean Sea is very deep. There's lots of, of water. Could easily crush, wipe out, and wash away all evidence. When it comes to what happened to Pharaoh's army and why it hasn't turned up since, why don't, why don't we find some archaeological artifacts? I like the Mediterranean Sea idea as an explanation. But it's not the traditional idea. Uh, central route that they just went across the Arabian Peninsula and then down into Midian. I'll show you uh, a drawing here in a second. And then the traditional one is a southern route. They go down south along the edge of the Arabian Peninsula. Somewhere down there is Mount Sinai. And then they come back up and end up going into the wilderness of Zin. So here's our map. I think in the MacArthur Study Bible, there's two routes mentioned here. Here's the traditional one in blue. So they leave Egypt. They make a few stops that we can pretty much locate. And then after that, there's question marks. They come down here. Somewhere down in here is Mount Sinai. But there's a question mark. You know, there's a couple of Mount Sinai's today that you can find. We don't really know where it is. And then they come back up. And then they end up in Kadesh, Barnea. And then in Numbers, they're wandering around here in the wilderness of Zin. And then they come back up and go into the land uh, in the book of uh, Joshua. So that's the uh, southern route. The northern route has them coming through maybe one of these lakes in this area right here. They're not super deep, though, and you would expect. I, I think if they crossed any of these lakes uh, and the, the army got defeated, there's things that are going to turn up. By the way, in the southern, in the southern route, uh, they would have crossed this lake here. Or, that's the, supposed to be the Reed Sea, or some would say they came in and cut across a little tip right there. That's the crossing of the, the Red Sea. The Red Sea, what we call today, is down here, though. So there's one fourth view that I didn't even list where people say, yeah, they came and they went all the way down here, crossed over in a boat, or crossed over on, on not a boat, but uh, through the water that God parted, and then showed up somewhere over here in Midian. And then the central route's the dash line there. So central route, just cut straight across, come down here, Mount Sinai's down here somewhere, then they go back up. So not really able to be determined. Traditionally, people, Christians have thought that they've done this here, and even the Jews themselves have said that. Uh, the, the northern route's the Mediterranean route. It goes like this. They cut through part of the Mediterranean Sea because God opens it up. Then they land back here. And then they go down and end up doing this here in the 40 years that they're there. So what's the solution? I don't know. Stick with the traditional unless you have a good reason not to. I just think it's interesting when we ask, why haven't this, the chariots, the metal swords, the spears, why have they turned up? Because if they do these other routes, they're crossing over very tiny, we would call them tiny lakes compared to the sea. You know, the bitter lakes right here are quite deep. Deep enough to swallow up an army. But why hasn't anything been discovered since? We don't want to speculate too much. So, All right, that's the book of Exodus. If you have questions, uh, please ask me after class. It's been a joy to go through it next week.
So uh, Leviticus is next. Uh, read up on that. Leviticus, we might take two weeks because all the sacrifices and things that are going on there. Lord, I thank you for the book of Exodus, that you redeemed a people for your own possession, and you use that terminology for Christians today. You've saved us, you redeemed us, you brought us out of bondage. And we just thank you for the wonderful recording of history there. Help us to take it seriously, take it literally, to believe that it actually happened. Well, we ask that you would change our hearts to love your scripture all the more. Amen.